This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bob. And over the course of our journalistic careers, we've interviewed hundreds of the world's most inspiring and influential people, from pop stars to politicians, celebrities to CEOs, to everyday people doing extraordinary things. Right here on First Act, we want to give you a little VIP access to the brains of some of Australia's most innovative movers and shakers in business and life. We find out how they came to their aha moments, their nah moments, and how they've tackled the many forks in the road to achieve their unique purpose. Now, today we're joined by an entrepreneur who has fundamentally changed Australia's media landscape. Tim Duggan co-founded millennial digital publisher Junkie Media back in 2006, and well before we all spoke in a language of endless gifts and memes. Before all that, there was Junkie. And before that, Tim wrote for Rolling Stone and once threw a party that lost him $80,000 in one night. However, his story is one of learning from mistakes and building a brand that's loved by millions. He shares these learnings in his two books, Cult Status, How to Build a Business People Adore, and his latest released just this year, Killer Thinking, How to Turn Good Ideas into Brilliant Ones. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sess and Adam. Wonderful to be here. Tim, welcome to First Act. We uh, we always start our conversations with what we call our First Act icebreaker, uh, a question to break the ice, uh, something a little unexpected. Uh, your icebreaker for today is you're throwing a dream party for 100 people. What's the theme? Who's the entertainment? And what's the food? Oh, what a great question. Um, the best theme is always a wig party. If anyone, <laughs> if if you can put on a wig, everyone seems to get transported into a new and different personality, and it really is the best way of kind of breaking the ice with people. So it's a wig party. Um, the performer that I have performed would be Lady Gaga, and just because oh. I, I've had her perform at one of my events when I used to run a nightclub on Oxford Street called Nevermind, and it was a relatively shitty small little club on Oxford Street for three hundred people, and she came there that night and performed as though it was Madison Square Garden. She just gives it her all. So I think even for 100 people, she would perform like there's 100,000 people present. Um, And what was the third part of the question? What's the food? Oh, the food for the night is going to be sushi. We're going to have something relatively light, relatively healthy. Um, People aren't there for the food. They're there to see Lady Gaga perform and they all got fabulous wigs on. Can I be invited to this party? Because I'm, I mean, we've got wigs, we have sushi, we have gaga. These are some of, these are some of the best things to be invented by, by humankind. <laughs> yes, you, Adam, you're on the guest list. <laughs> yes, I made it. Fantastic. Consider the ice broken. Oh, this is going to be a good interview. Your new book is called Killer Thinking, How to Turn a Good Idea into Brilliant Ones. Now, growing up, were you the kid with all of the best ideas, coming up with mad schemes for everyone? (laughs) I kind of was the kid that never grew out of being creative. 
Um, and I think anyone who kind of goes into the world of creating things, and so whether that's creating content, like what, what you, both of you do every day, creating stories and thinking up ideas, um, or whether it's someone who never gets the crayons kind of snatched out of their hands and told to grow up, um, they're the most interesting people. I used to get a tape recorder and write out a play and make force my brothers and sister to record the play with me and I'll go record and we would read some magical story <laughs> about the, a prince or a princess and I'd make them put on the voices and then I'd record them onto tape and then I would make my parents sit down after dinner and listen to these tapes. And in a really weird way, it was like an early form of podcasting um, that I just kind of, you know, loved the the act of creating and the act of writing and then the act of kind of forcing people to um, to, to make it and, and also forcing people to listen. You sound like a scene from Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a bit like that. And I just was very fortunate that as I grew up, I didn't let go of that. I, I, I almost did. When I, when I finished school and I went, uh, I, I, I went straight into advertising agencies from a, from a very young age and decided to study business, Bachelor of Business at UTS and then with a major in marketing, a major in journalism. And as soon as I started studying, I realized that business and economics and all that stuff was so bloody boring. Like it was just this kind of, it was this world that to me was really hard to understand. I just didn't understand the straight numbers. Um, I understand not to everyone it's boring and I've now figured out the good side of business and how to make that work for me. But just studying a straight up accounting and straight up things like that to me personally was really boring. And it was actually through one of my first big breaks in the creative world was thanks to an editor at a magazine called Revolver. Um, Seth Busby, do you know who that editor <laughs> at a magazine called Revolver was? <laughs> Would that have been Seth Busby? <laughs> it was. Seriously, Seth, you gave me my first ever full-time writing role when I was about 20 years old. And I remember going in to see you at a little office in Alexandria um, and you were in a corner. I remember and the pool, the pool. There, there was <laughs> a, pool a pool there. It was crazy it, times. <laughs> oh, it was very strange. And Revolver was a, obviously a free street press magazine that then evolved into the brag, which still goes now. Um, and hmm. Cess, you kind of enabled me to give up on a lot of that, the, the business side at the time and to become a full-time writer as a dance music editor um, Revolver. And it was the kind of the break that every person needs. So 20-something years on, thank you. <laughs> You're most welcome. I think um, you've just done so much for the, the industry. I'm glad that I was there at, a, at an opportune moment to give you your first leg up. That's all I can say about that. Now, those early days at the Bragg then, um, you also moonlighted a little bit for some other magazines. You did some Rolling Stone work. Was that what I imagine it's, you know, every music journo's dream is that they'll be writing for Rolling Stone. What was it like for you? Was it was it a dream come true? Yeah, it was, it was one of those weird things that where life imitates art. So I watched Almost Famous, as most people did, about the precocious teenager who goes on the road with Rolling Stone. Um, and at the time I was, I had a lot of common with him. I was also a precocious teenager. Um, and I realized, um, a really important kind of business lesson that is actually kind of stuck with me to this day, which was 
figuring out where the gaps are and kind of what is not being fulfilled and really going hard and kind of making that something that you can own. And so I looked around at a lot of magazines. And so I was um, around the time was the dance music editor at, at Revolver, as, as you mentioned, then the brag. And I just loved electronic music. So there was this real rise in um, particularly even Australian electronic music. And I looked around at magazines like Rolling Stone and realized that a lot of them at the time were living a bit in the past, now very rock and roll focused, and they didn't quite have anyone covering any of these niches. So I went to the editor at the time, um, who was um, Alyssa Blake, who now is an amazing um, theater reviewer and amongst other things. And I convinced her somehow as a 19 or 20 year old to give me a a couple of CD reviews to do, you know, 50 word reviews on. And I think she probably just took pity on me and she had no one else in the office to give these like weird electronic music CDs that came in. She didn't quite know what to do with. So she gave them <laughs> to me and I started then doing music reviews for her. And that then just evolved into building up trust and also building up a real niche of being able to be the person to understand electronic music within the Rolling Stone Australia offices. And then that was just opened up so many doors to me to write feature stories and interviews. And um, for a few years, I kind of was their main, um, particularly elect- electronic writer um, in Australia. It's amazing because EDM music is so huge now and it's just there's so much about it. They're dominating, dominating the charts. And back then to kind of have that as your niche, as your entry kind of into you into that world uh, would have been such a, you know, a real kind of good foot in the door moment, I guess. But I think when you think of that, when you look back at that time of being a music journal, I mean, a lot of people would probably go, oh, Rolling Stone music journal, that sounds like the dream job. Was it the dream job was, or were there misconceptions about it that you think that people still have? Adam, it was the dream job. <laughs> it seriously was. <laughs> <laughs> I, can imagine, I was in my early 20s. I was going around, um, I, I did a couple of overseas jaunts with them, went across to Singapore to cover some things and did some stuff over in New York. And I was writing about something that I loved. There was not one downside. I, I remember even for my first big feature story for Rolling Stone Australia, which was about Kid Kenobi. So he was voted at the time the number one DJ. And this was big for him. This was you know, his big mainstream sto- you know, story. Um, and this was big for me because it was my first multi-page feature in, in Rolling Stone. And I remember shadowing him for going around to lots of different music festivals. And I remember just spending you know, a very long amount of time, especially given you know how long you spend on interviews and features now or how long you can spend. I spent weeks, months with him. So kind of trailing him and hanging out at backstage and going to cafes and um, ask, calling up other people and asking them what they think about him. And it was, I could have spent years doing it and I didn't care what I was being paid. I was probably paid a couple hundred bucks for the story, if that. Um, but for me, when, when I was at that stage and I was just doing it because I really, really, really loved it, it seriously was the best job in the world. I remember back in the Bragg and the Revolver days, you used to take over venues with your fag tag events. Can you tell me a little bit about what the premise for fag tag was and what you were trying to achieve at the time? Yeah, I've always been one to look at big macro trends that are happening and try and figure out how can I help that trend grow bigger 
And how can I launch something into a rising tide that can make it go further than just me doing it? And one of those things happened around the mid-2000s where I noticed that my friends and I were part of this new generation coming through into the gay and lesbian scene. We had, um, most of us had kind of recently come out of my friendship group a couple of years earlier. And there was this new generation of people coming through who were kind of thinking about being gay or being lesbian or, or bisexual or transgender was one part of our identity, but it wasn't the sole part of our identity. It wasn't the thing that we would introduce ourselves with first. It might be the fifth or sixth most most interesting thing about us. And so I wanted to create a event series that I jokingly called Fag Tag at the time. I was 22 or 23. And the idea of it was that we would get a big group of queer people and take over a traditionally straight space. Um, and it started off quite subversive in which the first few ones that, that occurred, we would go to a, a big straight nightclub and I would tell people, hey, everyone, turn up on Saturday night. Here's the password to use on the door to get a free entry or to get a discounted entry. And we started doing that a couple of times. We did it at Chinese Laundry. We did it at a place called the, the Bourbon and Beefsteak in King's Cross, if you remember that. Yeah. And it was quite <laughs> subversive because all of a sudden everyone at this straight venue would start looking around and realize that there was something not quite right about the venue or something that felt a little bit different to a normal night. And it kind of took on a life of its own, so much so that within a few months of um, announcing it, I had thousands of people on a mailing list wanting to know where to go. And if I said, let's turn up at this venue on a Friday night, we'd have up to a 1,000 people turn up to a venue. So it then turned into a business for me, this little side hustle where I'd go to a venue and say, hey, do you want 1,000 people to come to your venue on a Sunday or on a, on a Saturday night? They would, of course, say yes, and I would take a percentage of the bar when that um, event was on. So it kind of became this really interesting win-win-win business um, that for me was, yes, it was a nice side hustle. Yes, it um was amazing to kind of get people moving around the city, but it also did just start to break down stereotypes and start to um, really increase um, inclusion and visibility and was just a hell of a lot of fun, to be honest. This started in 2004, so we're coming up to 18 years. Um, we had a bit of a COVID hiatus, um, but it's been going really strong for up until COVID. And I'm currently chatting to uh, a crew over in London who are looking at launching FagTag London. Um, so it's just quite oh, wow. funny, this little idea that I had when I was a 20-something-year-old about having more fun with my friends. Here I am as a 40-something-year-old still talking about um, this idea that just has this has these legs and can keep on going. There's a chapter in your book, Cult Status, where you talk about a party you threw that lost you $80,000 in one night. Um, and I really don't mean to be putting a dampener on your success because you've done so well since then. But I have to ask, how? How do you, how do you lose 80000 in one night? Oh, it happens very quickly. <laughs> and it was... <laughs> It's one of these things. So, so I used to think that bigger was always better. In business, I used to think that you just need to keep going. So if you have 100 people come to an event, then your next aim is to get 200 people. If you get 200 people, then you should get 400 people. And I kind of fell under this spell of just going for bigger is better all the time. 
So I'd had a couple of successes of smallish kind of events with, you know, a couple of hundred, 1,000 people. And so, of course, my naivety said, bigger is better. What is the one of the biggest venues in Sydney? And I looked around and I saw that the Sydney Entertainment Centre had never had a, a queer dance party there before. Now, the Sydney Entertainment oh, Centre, <laughs> yes, I know, right? Ah, the folly of youth. The Sydney Entertainment Centre normally <laughs> hosts Elton John when he does concerts, Madonna. Um, you know, it, it now has been um, uh, raised and it now no longer, no longer exists. Um, but it was a, you know, a very large entertainment centre that I thought should hold Australia's first ever gay and lesbian dance party there. So I decided to put this thing on. I... All of a sudden, my budgets went from, you know, $2,000 to $200 and something thousand dollars. Um, and that is how you lose $80,000 in one night because instead of losing $800, you just start adding zeros onto things. And you think that you're invincible and you think, well, of course, I can get 5,000 people to come to this event. And what happened was only 4,000 people came to the event. And because there was, it was about $80 a ticket, that $1,000 difference where I thought 5000 were going to turn up and only 4000 did meant that there was this $80,000 red line in my budget. Now, externally, people didn't know that. People that came along to this event thought it was great and it was so much fun and, uh, you know, 4,000 people going having this amazing time and I'm walking around going, oh, my God, I am 25 and I now have an $80,000 debt that I'm going to figure out how to repay. Um, and, you know, the, the, the story, if you've, if you've read my book, is that I do figure out how to um, pay it all back over time um, and, you know, it does have a, a relatively happy ending. But it's one of those things that we often don't talk as much about our failures and that's why I kind of loved being able to put that into cult status because it means, yes, I've had events that have made that much and I've had events that have lost that much and it's, pretty bloody shit when it happens. So for our listeners who might not have read Cult Status, and I don't want to discourage them from buying them, go out and buy it now, buy it now. Um, how did you dig yourself out of that hole? And and what what was the stress like? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 is, it is really stressful, and it's one of those moments when you learn to grow up and you have to kind of grow up pretty quickly. So I went around to all of the suppliers that um, and kind of figured out how I was going to pay them. And I was very fortunate that family and friends are able to kind of help me out and pay them back um, over time. But I'm someone that really believes in the, the every event that I kind of put on from then onwards went back to paying back some of that debt. And luckily, the Fag Tag and Co were, were pretty successful. So I had I had people that I've been very fortunate in my life to have people that have backed me um, and that are able to kind of support me, knowing that in the long term things will be okay, even if in the short term things aren't. Yeah, and you kept the conversations going, didn't you? You didn't very very much yeah. so. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's it's kind of about being as clear and honest and open as I could around what the failures were and then kind of putting together a plan on what I was going to do in order to um, to kind of like keep business, keep the doors open essentially um, and work my way out of it. And that's what I did for the next few years. I just continued to work my way out of it um, until now it's just a lovely anecdote that I can look back on and smile, but I certainly wasn't smiling at the time. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Early on, before um, you became author extraordinaire and man about town and um, junkie co-founder and all the many feathers that you've got to your boat, um, you were also part of another youth publisher, the Sound Alliance, and that's where I think you birthed your most beautiful baby, LGBTIQ website, same, same. So a couple of questions about that is... um. Why did you think it was the right time for an online queer site like Same Same? And how was it for you to suddenly be the poster boy for the community? Because you were. And what's your experience been like as an out and proud gay man, both in business and in media? My first baby will always be my favourite baby. And so Same Same, for those who are not aware, was Australia's first national gay and lesbian community website. It was launched in 2006. It was co-founded by myself and three of my friends who had already started a website called In The Mix. So In The Mix was a dance music community that was doing really amazing things in the electronic music space. And that's actually how I came to meet them. So Neil, Andre and Libby, um, they had started In The Mix and I used to put on my events on the side and I would go into their shitty little office on Oxford Street and sit there for hours with them because I would sell tickets to my events through In The Mix and it was during one of those conversations with Neil Ackland, who um, is an amazing business partner and one of my kind of greatest mentors, that we started talking about whether anything like in the mix existed for the gay community. And for me, it was a it was a ability to combine some things that I loved. So I loved journalism and writing. I loved kind of building communities. I loved the event side, and I had a real deep passion for. Um, the Australian gay and lesbian community. Um, and we launched Same Same at a time when the internet was starting to take off more and more in Australia. So Facebook and um, Instagram and everything hadn't really properly launched in 2006. I, I think Facebook, in fact, only launched in the US in 2004 or 2005. So it was this kind of like really wonderful time when before social media, when people would go to websites that they really identified with and they really felt an affinity with, they would, in fact, make them their homepage, and that was the battle to become someone's homepage. And we had things like forums on there where tens of thousands of people every month would come and talk in the forums about things they were going to do that weekend or people they wanted to meet. We had the ability to message each other. Um, we had the ability to create profiles, all these things that now exist through social media in a way we kind of helped pioneer in Australia before um, any of social media did. In fact, I remember we used to have a, a technical team of about 12 people um, when we were at Sound Alliance whose job it was was to create a lot of these features that now exist on social media. So things like photo tagging, so tagging someone in a photo. We had teams of people that would make that technology before it just existed on Facebook and existed everywhere else. And I think it's quite fascinating that that over that time to kind of have a front row seat 
to the change in digital media over the past 15, 20 years has been such a privilege and such a thrill. Also, bloody scary at times. Um, but Same Same was was just a really amazing community website. And as you said, Sess, it then kind of did thrust me into um, the forefront of a burgeoning community of queer people who were just doing really amazing things. And I remember feeling a really great sense of responsibility. So how could we really lift all the profile of queer Australia? So th- we, we launched things like the same, same 25, which was a list of the 25 most influential gay and lesbian Australians. And we did, you know, events at the Art Gallery of New South Wales where Justice Michael Kirby spoke and Malcolm Turnbull came along too. And I remember we, we announced that list one year of the 25 most influential gay and lesbian Australians. And it was kind of front page news on the Sydney Morning Herald, the Daily Telegraph put it on page three, kind of in a full page, which was all about just raising the profiles of all of these amazing people that some of the audience didn't even know were gay or lesbian but we're just doing amazing things in their spaces. And so I really always felt a great responsibility to try and really, you know, believe in the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, Tim, you really take me back to that time like, because, I mean, I must thank you actually just for, for what you did with Same Same because for me, uh, you know, as a, as a young gay man, I, I was always on Same Same and I actually I worked for SX News and I know that Same Same ended up you know, in that stable after a while. There's a whole history there. Um, and I worked in LGBTI media too. And I think um, I could just see how that was, it was such an important hub of community. And um, just as far as you were saying, with social media kind of being so nascent, it was really not really to the kind of sophisticated level it is now where you find out about things on social media. You found out because you, you know, there was a website that was speaking for you and speaking to you. And Addressing you, uh, addressing you as a kind of as a micro community. Um, so, really, thank you. <laughs> this is not a question; it's just more of a statement. <laughs> uh, cheers, Adam. I, I appreciate that. It's it was a really amazing time for our community, for the internet, for digital media, and as you kind of alluded to, we then sold same same to um, a publisher, which was the largest um, gay and lesbian print publisher in the country at the time. Um, and then unfortunately they went into administration a couple of years later and sadly took same, same down with it. However, the, the, the world has changed so much that I think same, same existed at a moment in time when it needed to exist. And I don't know if it'd be, have the same power today. You know, social media has really kind of taken a lot of those things. Um, forums have kind of come and go, um, in, in terms of popularity, so I was just really, you know, I can be very sad thinking about how my first baby no longer exists, but I'm actually super thankful for all that it was able to create and the opportunities it gave everyone who was a part of it. Um, and even, you know, the, the three of the same same had three editors over the years, um, Christian Taylor, Matt Ackerston and Samuel Leighton Dorr. And all three of them have kind of gone on to do really great things. Um, and I was just really glad that same same could be a part of so many people's lives. So your first baby, it kind of grew into, you know, a teenager or adult uh, in terms of junkie and how you how that formed. Uh, no, and no one can build a brand or foster a loyal following overnight. What did you do to sort of build that junkie audience in those early days? I learned so many lessons from Same Same. 
And then other websites that were part of the Sound Alliance world were in the mix, which was dance music, Faster Louder, which was live music. Um, and there was a real amount that I learned about community building. And so when we launched Junkie in 2013, I very much tried to figure out where is the white space opportunity and what communities aren't being served. And that was really important to its success because it meant that from day one, we weren't competing with anyone else. We'd almost created a new category and declared ourselves the leader in it. So we did a lot of research at the time um, and we looked around and we saw that in the youth media space, there was a lot of competition. There was, you know, Pedestrian existed and Vice existed and a bunch of other websites. But what we saw there was this gap in the market for was what we coined smart young Australians. So it was people who were interested in politics as much as pop culture. So someone who kind of wanted to talk about what was happening in the news, but then also wanted to talk about what they're doing on the weekend. And that kind of um, mix of the things that matter all the way through to the things that don't was a really important um, shift in how media spoke to young Australians. I think up until then, most people kind of dismissed young Australians and as not being interested in that kind of stuff. So we then hired um, news journalists and we hired political journalists as well as entertainment journalists. Um, and Junkie was a real runaway success um, within the first six months, um, so much so that the entire company then got rebranded as Junkie Media in about 2014. Junkie just had this really amazing run of kind of building an audience and building a really strong community around it. Now, Tim, you've been really candid about learning from mistakes you've made in business. What would you say is one burning mistake you have learned the most from? Adam, there's so many mistakes to choose from. I think anytime you run a business, for every success, there's probably five mistakes you made to get you there. At one stage, we took our eye off the finances um, and we ended up with large tax bill that we weren't aware of. That was a pretty big mistake. Another time, we tried to launch one of our websites in overseas territory. So we tried to take a website into the US and ended up going through a couple of million dollars and a couple of years of pain. And that didn't work because we weren't quite focused. I think the ultimate lesson that I learned, though, is trying to do everything at once. So it's, it's a really common thing that when you come up with a, a strategy, you always think you can do more than you can and you end up spreading yourself too thin. And so every single year, without fail, would look at our strategy for the year and really try and strip it back to just what were the most important things. Um, that was a really common mistake that, that we used to make every year. Now, you just talked about spreading yourself too thin, and with spreading yourself too thin, there also comes a lot of anxiety and stress. So do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs who might be going through stressful times, what they can do to get clarity back and stop feeling anxious? Entrepreneurship is really freaking hard. There are so many ups and downs with it. I remember chatting with Michael Fox, who started a business called Shoes of Prey with, with his wife and um, a bunch of others. And they end up raising 30 or $40 million and then the whole thing went bust. 
And I remember talking to him about it. And the way that he described it is a really useful way where he says that in entrepreneurship, the highs are higher than anything you experience and the lows are also lower than anything you experience. And what I have learned over time is how to try to level some of those highs and lows out. So to try and ride that wave um, by first acknowledging that the wave is always going to come. There's going to be good moments. There's going to be shit moments. And you need to be prepared to ride that wave. But you need to use the good moments to set up your self-care strategies so that you're not just going to try to hang on to them when the bad moments come. So the one way that I look at doing that is I'm really clear for me personally on what my self-care strategies are. So for me, I love taking long baths. I love going for hikes with my husband when we walk through the woods and just talk about anything and nothing. Um, I like taking my dog to the park and, and playing. I like going to the gym in the mornings. And I feel like when I'm not doing those things is when I'm at my worst. Um, there's a really simple activity in my book, um, Cult Status, called I'm at, my, I'm at My Best When. And it's just about trying to help people figure out when is it that you're actually at your best in terms of all the different other aspects of your life. And that's something that I always turn to um, when time gets tough. Well, you've, um, you've mentioned just then about your about advice that you have in your book and, and you've written, you used some of that time. I know that you've taken a bit of a step back from, you know, the day-to-day of, uh, of Junkie. Um, but, you know, cult status, I mean, that has that won the best entrepreneurship and small business book at the 2021 Australian Business Book Awards. Uh, what did you learn from the process of, of writing your books? Yeah, it's funny that I, as we've talked in this interview so far, I started off writing and I loved writing full time. And then what happened was that as I started to run the business more and the business got bigger and bigger, I then would have teams of writers who would do the writing and I would sit there and manage them and manage their problems and manage the business problems and help manage cash flow and manage marketing issues. And I kind of got away from what I really loved doing. So I left Junkie full-time in October 2020 after about 15 years um, there. And I then tried to figure out what I loved doing. And a few months before that, I had launched my first book, which was Cult Status. And the process of writing, researching, thinking deeply, exploring ideas, interviewing people that I admire was so nourishing that the whole process kind of brought me back to what I loved doing in the first place. And then not only is, do I enjoy the process of writing a book, once you then publish a book, talking to people about it and using it almost like a magnet to attract other people to you who also think the same way has been this just really heartening thing to, to see. Um, so the success of cult status has been phenomenal for me and so amazing to see. And so much so that my next book called Killer Thinking, the process of writing that and the process of researching, the process of doing interviews um, was just for me as um, satisfying as it was for the first book that I now love this idea of every few years I get to go deep into a topic and I get to ideally help other people figure out how to think better about some of these topics. Um, and that to me is just really thrilling and something that I kind of can't wait to keep doing. 
So you're now editor at large at Junkie. Now, obviously, you know you've used your time very wisely to write these books. But what does an editor editor at large do? Like, how involved are you uh, nowadays? Look, it's mainly an honorary title, um, which I think honorary suggests, doctorate. <laughs> it is, yes, yes. Yeah. It's one of those ones that it kind of says that I'll always be linked in some way to it, um, because it's 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 my baby that I I kind of gave birth to. But I think it is. Um, it's something that will always be a place in my heart, but I have other, a lot of other things going on now. And that's kind of what takes a lot of my attention. Um, so writing books, um, and I recently, um, started a industry body called the digital publishers Alliance that I'm the chairman of. Um, and that's a industry body that represents over 45 of the leading independent digital publishers in the country. Um, and that has been a really um, great experience so far as well. Kind of, once again, it kind of comes back to the theme of what I have always loved doing, which is building communities around areas I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about the digital publishing industry and being able to build a community of, of publishers. Seems to me you are always coming up with creative ideas and problem solving. Um, what will you do if the ideas ever run out, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> Seth, they will never run out. The the way that our brain works um, is just it just it's, it's like a renewable energy source. It keeps coming out. The problem, as I found, is that not every idea is a really brilliant idea, um, and that's kind of actually where the the genesis for killer thinking came from, which was that almost every idea that we have is you know is good in some way, but some of the ideas can then be massaged and refined and tweaked to become great ideas. And some of them can be taken even further on that on that path to become a killer idea, um, and that's something that I kind of was been really fascinating to explore the science and the world of creativity over the last couple of years, because I don't think we'll ever run out of ideas, but not every idea should be followed up on. Yeah, because there's killer ideas, but how do you come up with killer executions for those ideas? Not just the executions that work now, but the executions that are right for that, like. For the future, like and for and thinking about timing and other factors in, in play in, in the markets, like there's there's so many things, so many stars that need to align to allow a killer idea to turn into a killer business or a killer venture of some sort. Yeah, that, that's really true, Adam, and that's why my book is called Killer Thinking. And killer thinking is actually the combination of killer ideas and killer execution. Now, I've got a final question for you. Um, you believe in the power of business to do good. That's really part of what you do. What's one thing that anyone listening today can do as a business owner to put the power of business as a force for good into practice? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think the most important thing that anyone can do is to look internally before you look externally. So before you look around and figure out what needs to change, I think the most important thing you need to do is to look at yourself and to figure out why am I doing this? What's the purpose of it? What effect or impact is it going to have? And if you can get clear on your own internal motivations for things, then you can start helping other people. But until you kind of are really clear on that, um, you know, to use an analogy that I use in Book Killer Thinking, until you fit your own mask first, you can't fit a mask onto someone else. Um, so I think that's the most important thing that I'd, I'd advise anyone to do is just to look internally first before you look externally. 
Mm, good advice. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim, so much for joining us today. Um, your new book, Killer Thinking, is out now. And we thank you for listening to another podcast of First Act, another great episode. Without you, we'd be nowhere. Thank you, listeners. Come back next week for another conversation with a world-class Aussie innovator about their first act. <laughs>